0: I firmly don't think we can sort of just hold constant the sense we have of who we are as individual separate selves and then bring racial justice to it. Like (laughs) when I think of what gets in the way, then I think it's most of us will come into it, even from a place of our mindfulness practices, holding constant the sense of ourselves as separate good people who can, if we try really hard, be even better. I don't mean to minimize that as a location for entering into this conversation or the work. And to me, there is a barrier around the invitation that is deeply a part of the practices I call mindfulness. That's about disrupting or dissolving the senses that we have of ourselves as separate beings in a world that we can navigate with some fixed sense of control right? So that we always end up looking good and being on top and moving forward. It's like mindfulness itself is a radical disruption um, and very countercultural disruption of all of these ways of thinking about what it means to be alive, actually.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Rhonda McGee, author of the book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. Rhonda is a visionary law professor and mindfulness teacher who has dedicated her life and her work to integrating contemplative practices with issues of social justice. In this episode, we're gonna dive deep into the idea that inner transformation can serve as a useful and effective catalyst for societal change. We'll discuss how mindfulness practices can support individuals in recognizing and transforming their own internalized biases, although of course, it's no guarantee. Rhonda also touches upon some of the obstacles individuals may face when engaging in the kind of inner work designed to confront privilege. As Rhonda explores this interplay between compassion and fear, she highlights the dual nature of realizing our shared humanity, the complex emotions, the joys and fears that arise when acknowledging our interconnectedness. She urges us to examine this collective longing for a new way forward, one that transcends historical patterns of oppression one that invites all individuals to a more grounded and more inclusive existence. This is such a great conversation. I'm so grateful to Rhonda McGee for taking the time out to speak with me and broaden my perspective. I think I was listening to one excellent interview that you did with psychology today, and you spoke about growing up in North Carolina. And I, too, am from North Carolina. So I just wanted to ask you, where are you from and what was it like to grow up in North Carolina?
0: Wonderful. So I'm actually, I'm from Kinston, which is a little town you may be familiar with, mm-hmm. right? Between New Bern on the coast and Raleigh, right? About 70. Yeah. And so I was born in Kinston, lived there until I was about six and a half. And then after that, we moved up north to Virginia.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> we moved up to Virginia and I was raised in the Tidewater area near the Chesapeake Bay in Hampton. Okay. So yeah, both North Carolina and Virginia. And when I say Carolina, it kind of just comes all out. My accent starts coming more to the fore. Being in North Carolina was like all childhoods. On the one hand, has a certain kind of magical patina to it for me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though it wasn't always uh, particularly easy. Because Kinston then and now, at least in my experience, is like a quite a racially segregated town with a lot of the old. Like a lot of the dynamics of the legacies of racial caste and racial capitalism are just very strong, it feels like, in Kinston still. And they were when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in this Black part of Kinston where my my family had been living in Kinston and Snow Hill and these different parts of that region for decades back through and including the period of enslavement and segregation. My grandmother had been born in, ni- born in 1906 and lived all of her life in that region. And so I spent a lot of time with the, in that multi-generational context, my family was Christian fundamentalist, frankly, holiness, holiness. Hmm. So I witnessed my grandmother engage in what for her were prayer based I think of them, though, as centering contemplation practices Mm. that had something in common with something like mindfulness and meditation. But I witnessed her engage in those disciplines every day and be sort of supported by a sense of meaning and and ethical grounding Mm. for her life. And that stayed with me as a kind of a particular part of the magic of that time, Mm. just being in that space where I could see my grandmother and see how she would lean into those practices as a support for her unglamorous life in the world. She cleaned houses for other people and so forth. But so that's just a little bit of the window into what it was like for me growing up in North Carolina in the years that I was there.
1: Would you talk to me a little bit about your journey into law, your journey into becoming a law professor? That's
0: fast forward from, again, North Carolina to Virginia. And I went to school in central Virginia, in Charlottesville, at the University of Virginia there. So I was very fortunate to be coming of age in the post-civil rights era. When I went to UVA, I think women of any background were still relatively new. You know, that that university was created for white men, actually. Only women of any color in significant numbers um, for about 17 years or so before I came, right? So it was still newly gender integrated to let alone, you know, were there um, long histories of people like me being there at all, you know? So it was, it was a, a changing university space, but that's a long, deep, I mean, there were more than a hundred years of UVA having a different kind of commitment. So I went there studying sociology, studying how people resolve conflict management, and very fortunate to be able to go uh, at all. And yet had worked, you know, very hard to take advantage of these opportunities, uh, so that I got there and I was enjoying studying, but also really curious about how to deepen it. And I was either going to get a PhD in sociology and study conflict management from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Or I was going to, you know, find some other way. And one of my professors suggested that I consider law. And so I went to law school in a way as a continuation of my inquiry into how people think they resolve conflict. A kind of a sociological lens was always there.
2: Mm.
0: And, And a desire to teach more than to practice law was always there. But all of it was all of this interest in conflict management and, you know, how we do better by it was, I think, at least partly a long meditation on my own experience and the sort of social cultural location in which I was, you know, brought up where obviously trying to resolve these conflicts around who belongs and who doesn't and, Mm. you know, how to structure society in ways that support more and greater thriving for all of us. To me, these were the big questions that, you know, at the background of what I was seeking to look into Mm -hmm. in the course of my education. so it had a, a way of manifesting in sociology and another way of leading me into law, but always from that perspective of wanting to help create places where we can learn and grow and think about these issues.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm curious about just sort of the way that social justice and way that racial justice might have manifested within the work that you were doing with law, even before we get into the topic of the integration of mindfulness and contemplative practices.
0: So herein lies the challenge. Like, so when I was in law, um, you know, right away in law school in America, there are these ways of sifting and rank ordering. Mm. And then funneling people toward things that their performance in in certain standard measures kind of make available. So I was one of those people who was, for, on the one hand, fortunate to be sort of sifted into high-performing law student mm-hmm. and a certain window of opportunities that, that came from that. UVA, for example, is one of the top-tier law schools. It's associated with funneling law students into Academia on the one hand and in fact that's one of the reasons why one of my professors suggested I go to UVA law one of my sociology professors was saying it's a good funnel for law professors mm. again part of these deep structures of right privileging systemic opportunity that are not always obvious right when we just sort of look at people's resumes but so once I got into UVA and did well enough to then have access to these other kinds of corporate law jobs. I was sort of being funneled and pushed into that. Um, by which I mean to say, you know, there was a lot of conversation about how you should at least try these jobs. I know you didn't necessarily think you're going to be a corporate lawyer, but you could do this and that from that perspective. You can, you know, make a difference from within those systems. And as a young, you know, woman of color, there was some appeal to that sort of logic. So I ended up working in some corporate law firms for a while and while there my you know my interest in these broader social issues led me to bringing in pro bono cases where i would Mm -hmm. help you know black families in distress family law cases that where again a lot of these corporate firms will have a certain percentage of hours set aside for attorneys to do pro bono Mm. service work okay So on the one hand, I was studying corporate insurance law, actually, and practicing on behalf of corporate insurers, (laughs) AIG, you know, this little known company at the time that the world would later learn about, uh, was one of my clients, you know, State Farm, et cetera. But uh, in my pro bono work, I was doing immigration cases or cases of family law, um, you know, domestic violence. Section 8 housing sorts of cases or um, or engagement. Nonprofit work, trying to work with folks trying to make a difference by forming a nonprofit to look at racial issues more effectively. I helped a group of students from Stanford form a nonprofit in that regard. So what I was doing while I was practicing law was trying to you have a foot within you know some of these systems, places where people like me had not previously been allowed right to to see what was going on from the inside. But I was always trying in some way to infuse it with the kinds of commitments I had had for a more inclusive kind of justice. and my my eye was always on the ball of maybe one day I'll actually leave practice and go into teaching, which is where I might explore even more how to be an agent of change from within. Yeah, And so my time practicing law was spent in that way, but it was a relatively short period of time. I was practicing law for about four and a half years before going into teaching.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'd love to hear about sort of like how mindfulness, contemplative practices got brought in.
0: Yeah. So I was teaching, you know, personal injury law was my main, tort law was my main course, where I got to meet all the first year law students, uh, or, uh, you know, a certain cohort of first year law students every year, again, which was part of my change, a theory of change that I was operating under, which was like, you know, get to know students early on, and, and sort of be in a position to help support a way of thinking about law that might be more inclusive even as we teach, you know, relatively traditional themes. So I was teaching that and then also teaching classes on race and law, including critical race theory, Hmm. which was something I wanted to teach as opposed to being asked to teach. You know, law is a pretty traditional field. And so it has never been the case that, um, you know, you could necessarily count on any particular place or region as being a place where we within law, you'd see a lot of mm. aggressive support for social justice work. So, so I was like bringing in the critical race theory, you know, classes uh, from the first year that I taught law school at the University of San Francisco, and I've consistently been bringing in um, opportunities to study about race in American legal history and to. Deep in our exploration of, you know, this Janus faced quality of law, on the one hand, it's a place where we turn for, you know, liberatory potential. We're trying to bring lawsuits for actual change on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's so many ways that the entire system is still infused with the dynamics that replicate caste and oppression, that to simply be about bringing cases is to miss this huge other side and other opportunity, I always thought, to kind of um, disrupt Mm. the normal science of how the systems keep creating injustice. So a big part of what I was trying to do and have been trying to do in law is to work on that large iceberg beneath the surface Which is the way the entire system is deeply, uh, let's say, constitutive of oppression. It is how oppression gets formed Mm. that has been the kind of critical legal, not just critical race theory, but critical legal project that my work has always also been about. So it's been, you know, from that place of like outwardly teaching classes that are traditional and not so traditional, tort law and then classes around race and law, but bringing this critical lens that is consciously seeking to expand consciousness about the sort of obvious and non-obvious sociological lens as well, but the obvious and non-obvious social, spiritual, moral functioning of law in our world. That's really been the sort of deeper project that I've been about. And it's been an ongoing journey. <laughs> I,
1: I imagine that it has. That you know, At what point did you feel that the inner work became critical to uh, uh, being able to achieve or pursue social change in a sustainable way?
0: Yeah. Well, again, there is this link that is, again, not obvious and often never discussed between critical legal thinking, and this inner work project. Mm. Just to quickly say, so there's critical race theory, but that emerged out of this body of thought called critical legal studies, Mm. which was originated by white male Northeastern fancy law school graduates from Harvard and Yale, Duncan Kennedy, Peter Gable, these types of folks. Within this critical legal project, there was a kind of a a piece that was about showing how law was replicating class-based inequality, right? It was the reproduction of hierarchy, was one of the big themes of this critical legal project. But then there was another piece, quieter piece, much less popular part of the critique, that was a critique of law's alienating effects. How it, how it was, it was, it basically was a spiritual critique of law. Mm. In fact, it was called that. And it was aiming to help wake us up to the ways that thinking about ourselves as these individual, rights-bearing, separate and apart entities, right, who would bring a lawsuit to to make a difference. That way of thinking about ourselves was, again, a deep structure of law, but also a deep part of what keeps us, you know, kind of replicating these systems Mm. and never really making much progress, so that spiritual critique of law was aimed at, aimed at asking what are the effects on our inner lives of this system that we are now all, you know, kind of trained to not just engaging, but in a certain sense, keep passing on to generation after generation without really changing the system very much. So I was drawn to the, that critique, that inner critique, that spiritual critique of law on the one hand. And then on the other hand, just engaging my own personal practices, and I started to see the interrelationship between these two. And so I would, you know, as law professors will do, gather together with other professors reading articles being written about this critique of law. And I would then be the one saying, are we also going to meditate? Are we also going to infuse our own experience so that we are not just having an intellectual conversation? And then not everybody who was doing the writing about it was interested in the practice and not everybody who was practicing was interested in writing and thinking. So I was always trying to find that that bridging intersection. And so, you know, people would say, I think you want to go meditate. There's a meditating lawyers group (laughs) that you might want to join. And so um, I found myself bridging these communities of like scholarly inquiry around What is wrong with law? Why does it keep replicating these, not just racial and racist hierarchies, but gender hierarchies, class hierarchies, LGBTQ? Why is law still doing this all the time? And what are the effects on our hearts, minds, spirits, this false sense that we have of our separateness in a world where we can control everything if we're just good enough? Mm. Like how is law part of the problem in that regard? Mm. But then how can practice our own personal practice commitments for me, meditation, but other ways of, again, re-inhabiting my body and and really opening up the, you know, sort of subjective relationing, right, that is inherent in every moment. Mm. How could that, those commitments, you know, sort of help inform the kind of critical legal project that I was involved in. That was something I was very, very interested in. Now, at this point we're like, now we're in a very small group of people <laughs> in the world who would ever even think, you know, well be <laughs> in this kind of conversation. And that meant that, you know, I started to find other ways of expressing these interests. And and it was from that personal impetus to not be in a circle of one trying to do all that, I started to find um, how, see how the mindfulness community itself
2: Mm -hmm.
0: could be an ally in this effort to take these practices off the cushion and into the world. And that opened up the the sort of vein of practice and writing and exploration around mindfulness and social justice for me.
1: Do you think that individuals can navigate And address their own biases and blind spots better if they're engaging in like a mindfulness, compassion practice?
0: Yes. With a caveat. Uh (laughs) I mean, I think that's true, but I think it um, there needs to be some support for that. Yeah. I don't think it, in other words, I guess I'm trying to say, I don't think it automatically necessarily happens that way. And I say that, you know, with a lot of humility, having been over the years practicing with others Seeking to offer some support, but also having heard my colleagues and my peers, I've heard many of my colleagues just say, "I've practiced for many years. It did never, it never occurred to me to bring this practice to bear on these issues of social inequity." And it's not easy for me, though I've practiced. You know, let's say thinking of one friend, you know, I've been practicing for 20 years. Uh, it's still not easy for me as a white male embodied. Right. Someone who's been framed to think of oneself in this way to work against bias using mindfulness. Like there are many other bypasses. There are many ways I could just practice in ways that never really invite that kind of inquiry and or let alone deconstructive project. Right. Around trying to, you know, make the world actually less biased. Mm. It's a call for humility then. Around this idea that, yes, because I'm meditating, I'm going to necessarily be more (laughs) able to navigate a world of bias. No, I do think (laughs) there are ways, though, for sure, for sure, for sure, that these practices can be turned toward or opened up to that field of inquiry. Mm. And therein lies the value of a supportive community of practice of teachers or guides you know, of, again, being more humble about what it actually is inviting of us, then, yes, I think from that place, a lot could happen and might happen.
1: Well, I'll ask you this. When it comes to racial justice work, what obstacles have you observed in individuals who are beginning to engage in the inner work? You know, what comes up for them, perhaps in terms of privilege Mm -hmm. or else that can get in the way of increased empathy?
0: So uh, it's a really good question, and I think it ties to what I was saying before. I don't personally um, in my in my own view of what racial justice work invites is not necessarily consistent with the dominant way of thinking about it in terms of the social justice discourses of our times.
2: Mm.
0: For me, it's not about parity or creating more seats at the same tables. In the same houses. Mm. It's very, very much about pausing long enough to see how the tables and the houses completely need to be reconstructed for all of us to thrive. Then ultimately, it invites all of us into this again, the repair work, the deep repair and reformation work that I think is called for as a legacy of, you know, thousands of years of this formation of the notion of the individual now, this sort of agent of change in the world with this identity, with this particular history, with this particular story, with these grievances, as opposed to this Life energy, life force embedded in the world, Mm. much more mystical way of thinking about who we all are, I think, is essential if we're actually ever going to live in ways that bear the stamp of real transformation around injustice. In other Mm -hmm. words, I I firmly don't think we can sort of just hold in place or hold constant the sense we have of our who we are as individual separate selves and then bring racial justice to it. Like (laughs) Uh personally, I don't. That's not how I think of it. I and so when I think of what gets in the way, then I think it's most of us will come into it, even from a place of our mindfulness practices, holding constant the sense of ourselves as separate, you know, good people who can, if we try really hard, be even better. And that is a place to begin for me, or at least some important, I mean, I think there's, that's really important point. I don't mean to minimize that as a, a location for entering into this conversation or the work. And when just in response to your question about what are the barriers, I think mm. if that's how you hold constant, what we were talking about, then, then to me, there mm. is a barrier around the invitation that is deeply a part of the practices I call mindfulness that's about disrupting or dissolving the senses that we have of ourselves as separate beings in a world that we can navigate with some fixed sense of control, right? So that we always end up looking good and being on top and moving forward. It's like mindfulness itself is a radical disruption of, and very counter-cultural disruption of all of these ways of thinking about what it means to be alive, actually. And so I think that if you're coming to me, if you're coming into mindfulness with the kind of a view that it's really just going to make you a better human being, it's okay, it's great, and it's important, and it's a good place to start, but it's ultimately going to, to me, run into a bit of a, it's going to be a part of the barrier of really waking up to, what these radically, potentially awakening times that we're in. Yes. Right? P- pandemic, climate change, racism coming constantly, patriarchy coming back. It's like you know, queer rights being be- beaten back. We are obviously in a world of, that is trying to, that is transforming around us. And we are, I think, um, all of us hobbled, hampered by, deformed by, the received ways we have of thinking of what it means to be a human and what what, what success looks like, like that is st- we're just bringing all of this in from the 19th century, the, to the 20th century. It's needing a new way. We're needing a brand new, whole new way of thinking about ourselves in relationship to the cosmos. Frankly,
2: mm, mm-hmm.
0: and to me, when I think about what can get in the way of quote unquote racial justice and mindfulness work, it's kind of those sorts
1: of things. <laughs> I mean, this is fascinating, and it's sort of, kind of mind blowing to consider what you're, what you're speaking about here. If I understand what you're saying, you're saying that mindfulness can be a, a disruption of this whole notion of the individual self,
0: which is kind of scary, right, for many people.
1: One hundred percent. I mean, to me, it's a as, a, as an utter paradigm shift. But I get it because I, I feel like at Eslin, which has been predicated around the notion of human potential for six decades now there is this call for a reorganization in some senses around the idea of collective human potential mm-hmm. and so i'm guessing that that is sort of what you're pointing towards too a greater interdependence as opposed to independence
0: yes now here's the rub though traditionally over the many decades there've been many people who've been interested in this kind of reawakening reorganizing right reperceiving and I think there's always been a challenge around the um, temptation of what has been called bypassing, right? John Wellwood and others have talked about the temptation of spiritual bypassing of the way the ego likes to kind of feel they're making a big transformative shift. <laughs> <laughs> when actually we're just finding a new way to hold our same old baggage or our same old desire for control or our same old, desire to feel like our kind is really already secretly got it all together and those other, right? So,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so it's really an invitation to sort of say yes to the sense that what I'm speaking about is in the air of what the Eslin community has been, I think, aiming and pointing toward, however, I do think at least in my ex- humble experience the let's call it the west coast new age human potential movement has embedded a lot of spiritual bypass a lot of we are already kind of evolved and to the degree you might want to talk about injustice that's a sign that you and your kind need to evolve to where we are where we're already one and so it's 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 with a certain kind of humble you know view That from within these spaces where I have been privileged to meet a lot of beautiful teachers and spirits and souls, that it seems like there's a call for a more grounded. This is where I've been using the phrase soulfulness, a more grounded appreciation of what it what it really takes to become more intimate with our own bullshit (laughs) around these Identity-based hooks. It, it really is, you know, it's it's a it's a humbling, I think, invitation. Um, and you know, this quality that I'm calling soulfulness is about really noticing the attachments that we have to the things about the way things are that feel really good and feel really affirming, and that, in their own unconscious way, can continue to replicate us versus them Mm. dynamics or Mm. some of us already belong more than others, you know, or those sorts of things. And so, yeah, I think, thank you for naming that. I think the excellent community sees itself and has good reason to see itself sort of part of this invitation to reconceive of what it means to be human Mm. And this is one of the reasons why I feel very fortunate to be a part of this community. At the same time, I can say as a person who comes into this community in this body, black, racialized, petite, cisgender, female, um, there's a lot about Esalen that feels quite white and quite um, unaware of the legacies of colonialism and all of the interlocking oppressions Mm -hmm. in the way that we, in this community, I'll say we, have held the sort of dominant human potential invitation.
2: Mm, so
0: the okay. question is, how do we keep breaking that open? How do we keep, you know, actually, um, ah, I don't want to say doing the work. It sounds so cliche, but really just, you know, learning.
1: Mm-hmm. How do we
0: keep from yeah. life? Yeah. Because life has so much to teach us.
1: mm, mm. And thank you so much for for naming that and sort of the legacy of white supremacy within the human potential movement and the enormous blind spots that would lead someone to feel like the human potential movement was birthed out of Abraham Maslow and um, Alan Watts and Algis Huxley's, uh, whatever, long soulful beards or whatever.
0: Right, right. And by the way, I'm just reading new research around Maslow about how much he leaned into indigenous teachings and practices, studied from them, knew a lot more from that experience about the role of the communal in helping promote whatever he later articulated as self-actualization. In other words, there just is so much more for us to see if we're willing to see it, but it can be humbling to understand ourselves as lifelong learners, even those of us who've learned and practiced and even taught so much.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely yeah i mean you have this incredible phrase i want you to return to if you feel open to it we must become intimate with our own bullshit <laughs> yes. yes yes tell me more about that because i sent. <laughs> i'm sensing like the truth you know flasher going on for me yes
0: so thank you for the invitation to reflect on that i mean there's so many different ways i could in, and so just for now just to touch touch on a little bit of a riff around what that what that what that holds for me in this moment i mean literally part of what western modernity you know the sort of civilizing narratives of that embed in all of us is a kind of a automatic reaction and resistance to the idea that we even have bullshit <laughs> literal bullshit <laughs> like, uh, I you know measure my the quality of my having overcome by the distance I can place from like whoever has to clean that shit up, <laughs> like literally, that that ties all the way back to little you know Indian South Asian castes, right? Which is not the same as American caste, but it rhymes, right? This idea that there are other people who deal with the bullshit, and part of our measure of our you know, this is the Protestant ethic. Our measure of our election by the spiritual, you know, the gods, if you will, is how we 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 appear to be resource in ways that protect us from the humiliating realities of what it means to be these soft-bellied, carbon-based, more animistic and animalized than we like to acknowledge. <laughs> be right. We we are doing everything we can. To, like, keep that, you know, like, awareness of, like, the fact that we are in our shit all the time and falling apart all the time, like, at bay. Like, we got to keep that at bay. And, you know, we measure our success in a certain sense. And I know what it's like. I think mean, I'm a law professor. I live in a home in San Francisco. I'm, I've am i been formed. This is where whiteness is my, and, and colonialism is my, you know, barrier is on my shoulders, too. You know, I, I wouldn't be in this conversation if I hadn't figured out a way to, to learn and to live those patterns just to the same degree as you, right? I mean, you know, we all are in this. This is where, you know, I think of, you know, one of my, yeah, one of my teachers in this moment, Bio lafe. this way that we have all been formed to think of whiteness as associated with certain bodies and we've misunderstood or misperceived whiteness. And I talk about this in critical critical race theorists talk about this all the time, but it gets misunderstood all the time. Whiteness, of course, is a is a feature of modern life that any of us who succeed in modern life are are colluding with in some way. Are are always being tempted to help perpetuate it's it's the water that we we swim in. And so you know i know something about wanting to protect myself from the humiliating consequences of just being a human being and wanting somebody else you know to maybe be available to do the dirty, to do the dirty work literally okay and if we look at our histories as humans i look at the life my grandmother led she was doing the dirty work and cuz in the southern part of the united states where i was born and raised people like me were literally still supposed still to this day supposed to be doing the dirty work right Martin Luther King Jr. died while protesting in Memphis in 1968, the treatment of sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, in a in a protest in which they were walking with placards with saying, I am a man, because sanitation workers were, there was a racist order that the Black sanitation workers were literally more vulnerable, had to ride on the outside of trucks, and would sometimes fall into the trucks or have to rest inside the compaction you know, mechanisms of the truck during the rain. Mm. And two black men had died recently because of, they were trying to be protected from the rain. King goes to Memphis. Again, this is my way of saying so much of the social justice work has been about repairing these deep structures that say there's a lot of shit in life that I don't want to have to deal with. Yeah. When I said we got to get intimate with our bullshit, I mean that both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm all the things that we're glad there isn't a screen that reveals what our thoughts are while we're up teaching and presenting this we are all one we right <laughs> inside it's like we're one as long as those people are kept a certain kind of distance as long as i don't have to be confronted you know with some of the pain of recognition that you know but for a little bit you know their blues could be mine or their vulnerability could be mine. And I'm scared kind of shitless of that. Like, I don't, you know, I mean, I think one of the the insights that I've been exploring along the way is that in our communities of practice around mindfulness and, you know, awakening, if you will, there's a lot of talk about compassion and and the way that realization of interconnectedness necessarily opens up a font of compassion almost. Mm. And yet, in my experience, realization of interconnectedness, and then this comes back to the conversations I've had with teachers who've said, yeah, you know what, just meditating doesn't necessarily make me more able to deal with my bias. Because for some people, they're willing to be honest about how realizing, and I'm one of those people, realizing our interconnectedness, on the one hand, is an invitation into this loving embrace of like, oh my gosh, let me help you when when you're suffering. But on the other hand, it can create a lot of fear. It's like, yes, we are interconnected by that virus that originated somewhere in China. Therefore, please, let's seal off our borders from all the people (laughs) from China. And like, no, I don't think we should have an immigration policy that bars immigrants from different parts of the world that we consider to be dirty or shithole. But on the other hand, I might quietly vote for somebody who who does make make sure I'm a little bit more protected from this radical (laughs) interconnect. Right. So I think um, having that, whew, you know, lovingly creating a space where, where we can acknowledge what it's like for us,
2: mm-hmm.
0: including that whole range of emotions, the part of us that wants to be open and loving, the part of us that's really scared, mm-hmm. that has no idea, how, right? Because who does? How are we going to make it in a world without oppressions? Mm-hmm. How how are those of us who are not oppressed right now right. going to continue? You know, we we have nothing to prepare us but what we've seen historically, which is maybe the oppressed, you know, overtake or replace those who have been the oppressors. It's like, well, who wants that? How do we how do we find some new way, right, that allows all of us an honest, grounded Place in this world, a sense of our own indigeneity, like the sense, other way of thinking about indigenous. We're all indigenous to this planet. We're all born. We're all selected to, or selected for, by Earth to be a part of whatever this moment is supposed to be about. And we don't, we don't have language even for allowing and and sort of settling into a sense that actually there's enough for all of us. There's joy in just you know being alive together and we can find a way. We don't have language, we don't have political processes for that. And to me, that's both really kind of scary, I understand that, I feel the fear, but it's also that is the opportunity and the invitation of this time.
1: Mm. Wow. Because I know this work is difficult, right? I wanna hit on the experience of self-compassion and other strategies and techniques that individuals could use to maintain resilience and self care while engaging in, in the work of social and racial justice.
0: Oh man, that's such a good question. Um, you know, here's where I often say it's really just all about love, and and I don't mean that in a Pollyanna or Hallmarky <laughs> right kind of <laughs> kind of way. I mean the kind of love that King gave his life for. And I, just like King said in that last speech in Memphis, right? Like every human being, we think longevity has its place and we want to live long lives like everybody else. But at the end of the day, this question of how do we make real the sense that I think is, is present if we're just open to it, that we really are bound up together, that our hearts are capable of feeling for and with each other, and and that from that place, we might not know what to do in response because we, again, as I mentioned before, haven't really been trained and formed to figure out whatever the next way might be. But we, we might be better able to just pause, to just create more space for letting each other come home to the reality to whatever it is that we're actually suffering with and through. And so if I feel a little bit more spacious stability and resilience, right, this is where I think the resilience work is really about us, all of us. You know, it's really not just about me trying to figure out how I can be more resilient in the struggle. Again, it's like whatever amount of that I can experience, it's really for the mutuality of things. So that when I'm meeting another human being who, who has a little bit less in the moment, right? Is feeling a little more beaten down, a little more exhausted or more more than a little. How can I kind of um, be a space within which the truth can be spoken, be a space where I can listen this person back into some sort of sense of our connectedness and the love that exists, the acceptance that already exists the belonging that exists for all of us just as we are. So I think, you know, it's really about how these practices for me disrupt the the sense of me and mine and my little self and my resilience and open up a sense of me being a part of this natural world where I don't care how many years I learn, how many degrees I get. I'm never going to be able to figure out all of the magnificent ways that these body, this body, with all of its social disabilities, if you will, has been 100% kind of selected for in this environment and has all kinds of skills and navigated that I will never know. But being delivered into a more trustworthy sense that we already belong mm-hmm. and that we already can help ourselves by pausing, by breathing, by lying down when we need it, by finding our good familiars, the people with whom we can have a good genuine conversation when we need it, by being silent when we need it, delivering ourselves into the, the old practices that support quote unquote us as individuals and recognizing that what deeply is being invited in these practices is a coming back home to our always embodied and embeddedness in a world that is more for us than against us, let's say. Mm. Even when we see the fires coming in the, you know, in the smog coming this world that's selected for these bodies by definition is more for us than against us. How can we kind of practice in ways that keeps reminding us of that and from that place, then we can be more for than against every other life form. Not easy. I have trouble with snakes, spiders, you know, rats. (laughs) So, but still this invitation, how do I meet that other? Mm -hmm. from this place of our obvious, you know, co-predicament on this planet that is already in the heavens. Like, how can we meet each other more rightly is the question.
1: And I'll kind of pose this, I'll I'll broaden this inquiry Mm -hmm. to that of an institution. How does an institution such as Esalen, again, predicated around this notion of sort of an individualistic human potential begin the transition? to one that has more cognizance of the world around it, that is more sort of like oriented towards a collective and the needs of a collective, how does how does one do that with, without sort of reverting to the traditional blind spots that have been part and parcel of it?
0: I think these good questions are the kind that uh, we, again, is Roca right? Raina Maria Rilke. Was famous for saying, you know, it's a really good question. I'm paraphrasing. We're not going to find that one ready answer. Mm. But if we're fortunate, we allow the question to linger as teacher to haunt us into living our way, you know, bumping into walls as we go and thriving out of failing, like Phoenix, right, rising. The kinds of, that is the kind of question that is way bigger than any one of our minds and um, and any one of even our institutions in this time, I think, right? Esalen is an institution embedded in a world. And so I think it's, it's actually having the courage to keep asking that question, to know that that question is really important. And it is going to take us beyond the capacity of our minds, given the way they've been formed and the way they've been trained and the way forget about the minds, the way our whole body and being everywhere we turn, we're reminded we're supposedly separate. We're supposedly on our own. We're Right. <laughs> but we're constantly reinforcing that. And we, that, you know, that's an ocean that we're in. And we just all learned by looking at stuff that happened in the oceans last week that we ignore, we, we fail to respect oceans at our peril. We're in an ocean of training that we're separate and this and that. So that all comes is to say that, um, we can keep asking this question and honestly being the the stick in the mud that raises the hand and say, have we looked at how this particular policy, whether say it's the particular policy around housing or tuition or fundraising or scholarship or teaching or, right, how does this policy, how does this program, how do these hires... How does this board, it's just being willing to ask those questions and to sit in the space of the not knowing and to maybe take one lean in one subtle way in the direction of a a shift and then see what happens as a response to that. I mean, to me, that's how we kind of may, if we're fortunate, and I think we are, I think everything around us on this planet reminds us that if we are willing to just be open to the creative potential of every moment, as opposed to feeling like we got to get out in front of it, fix it, make it what we thought it was, we can have much more openness around the boundaries mm. of what's possible, then mm. the the universe and the world and the systems in which we're always always already embedded and apart, they have creative lessons and enlivenings to deliver. To us as well. So it's not all just on us or on Esalen, but it is on us perhaps to do our part, which is to ask the questions and to be a part of holding the space mm. for the answers to emerge.
1: Rhonda McGee, you'll be at Esalen July 24th to 28th in a festival of interconnectivity and spirit, teaching alongside Dan Siegel, Alyssa Eppel, Tom Littlebear Nason, and Douglas Drummond. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and and learn from you. I feel like we could do another hour and I'll I'll be right there with you.
0: Thank you so very much. And it's been a pleasure for me to to talk with you and learn from you in this conversation as well.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. This episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Special shout out for some post-production audio engineering assistance from the whiz kid, Hunter Stroop. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.